That ugly fat man swim in a red tire made of stone. The painted lady paddled next to him with two poodles on her lap. Garbo quietly picked a flower while a chauffeur won his checker game. Barry Moore took a noonday nap. Diamonds fell like rain. Up in Xanadu, diamonds fell like rain. Citizen Kane was king. Poor Citizen Kane. Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and this is episode 126 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about three films from late July 1972 today. Uh, three rather weird films, actually, and I think that's one of the uh, unique uh, little attributes that, uh, you know, other than their coincidence of uh, falling together on the, uh, you know, the latter weeks of, of that month and that year, July 72. There are also three films that are streaming on the Criterion channel. Uh, may not be there forever, but they're there now. In fact, I know what one of them, uh, Greaser's Palace, is going to be leaving at the end of the month, which is was kind of a bit of a surprise to me when I saw that the other day because I thought this was one that had been kind of part of the permanent collection. It's been on the channel for a long time, but alas, that time is limited. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, you know maybe why that wound up on the channel when we get to it. Uh, the other two are Chow Manhattan, kind of a warped biopic of Edie Sedgwick in her final screen performance and appearance. And uh, that'll be the first film we talk about. And then we'll be wrapping up with Larry Cohen's directorial debut, Bone, starring Yafet Koto. So uh, three odd films. And uh, as I've said, I made a TikTok about this. Uh, I think it was even a couple weeks ago when I was just kind of first getting started in my preparations for this episode. Three films that are almost guaranteed to offend just about any viewer at some level or another. <laughs> now, how easily you take offense or what uh, what kind of pushes those buttons for you may vary, of course, from person to person. And some people are probably free-willing enough to just let it all go. But these films are definitely transgressive, each in their own unique way. And it does make me wonder what was going on in July of 1972 that these three independent films were all released in the cinemas at various spots on the globe, uh, looking for an audience and thinking that uh, this is what the viewers wanted to see. So <laughs> we, we have we have some sorting out to do, and I'm very interested to hear the reactions of my guests. So let's go ahead and get into that. Uh, first, we're going to introduce Richard Doyle. Richard, welcome back. Hey, good to be back. Yes, you have been one of my go-to genre specialists here whenever we get these kind of odd one-offs on the Criterion channel. Uh, I almost know for a fact I can reach out and say, hey, Richard, you want to do this? And you're right there ready to answer the call. <laughs> and I appreciate that once again. Uh, our other guest today is David Seeley. David, over there in England, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, good, to, good to talk to you guys. Nice to be here. Yes, exactly. I think you would express sort of an interest just to kind of get back on the pod once in a while. Every, you know, after a while, it's been probably a few months uh, since you've been one of my guests here. But I always appreciate your appearances, and I also appreciate your adventurousness and being willing to take on uh, these three films. Um, now, had you seen any of these before? Uh, I hadn't, and actually, um, how I came to be here tonight is really I I, I listened to your. Poseidon Adventure oh, okay, uh, podcast, sure. and just by coincidence, I had uh, 
taken a fancy to that and watched it just a few nights before. And then your yeah. episode dropped just mm. by sheer coincidence. And I listened to it. And uh, afterwards, I thought, you know, I haven't uh, talked to those guys for a while. It'd be quite nice to catch up with them and chat about some films. Yeah. So I, I had a look at what you, what was upcoming and I picked these out because I hadn't seen them before. They were all things that I might have heard of uh, vaguely, but I, I hadn't had a chance to see them. So I thought, well, here's a great opportunity. I'll watch these and then we can have a chat about it after. It'd be great. Well, all right. I hope you're not regretting your decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're well, certainly interesting that I can say that much for sure. Interesting is a very uh, generic and applicable word here. Uh, successful, entertaining, worthwhile, important. Uh, everybody's mileage is going to vary on this. I think they are worthwhile. I'm certainly, like I say, looking forward to the conversation just to see where it leads. We don't really script these things out here. And in this particular episode, I will have to just admit, I have not done as much of the homework that I typically do. Uh, mainly because these films are a bit on the ephemeral side. They're all pretty minor works in their own way. And basically, you know, I'm not sure they're going to be going down as as uh, really important additions to the, the canon, if you will. Uh, but they still sort of show something interesting happening in the culture of that time. Uh, I do really enjoy that era, early 70s. It was a very formative and pivotal part of uh, my life and uh, even though I didn't see these films up until just recently um, with one except I had seen Greaser's Palace uh, probably a year or so ago uh, just because I was interested in it from Robert Downey Sr. Um, you know these films were kind of picking up something that was in the air culturally speaking back back in those early days of the 1970s. So um, yeah, Richard, let me just ask really generally, how, how much have you seen of these films prior to getting ready for this podcast? Uh, Chow Manhattan's the only one I hadn't seen. Okay. I, see, I saw Greaser's Palace years ago, and I've seen Bone like two or three times. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to go ahead and just kind of roll through these, again, fairly briefly. Like I said, I haven't done especially deep research um, on the films. Um, I may not have a whole lot of time for trivia or some of the more fine details uh, that goes into the making of these films. We're going to try to keep the discussion for each film to about a half hour max. Um, we'll see how that goes. And if we can uh, handle them even more efficiently, I won't be opposed here because I've, I'm ready to just kind of hear some reactions, give some hot takes, uh, dish out a few uh, recommendations or uh, what we liked, what we didn't, and then see where it goes from there. So let's uh, let's proceed without any further ado with Chow Manhattan. All right, so let's talk about Edie Sedgwick. She is a uh, she was a face of the '60s. Uh, she was a kind of an it girl from like what '65, '66, I think was kind of her prime time. And she was born into a fairly affluent family, but went through some real hard times. Um, both, uh, you know, kind of in her family dynamics and just the kind of struggles with mental health. Uh, there was there was a lot of difficulty in in her upbringing, and uh, and yet she turned out to be a, a very beautiful young woman, uh, very striking uh, face and figure. Uh, like I said, she was an it girl who was prominently featured as a model in magazines and advertising and really got into making the scene in New York City 
in in the mid years, just as the cultural sort of upheavals of that decade were really kicking into full force. Uh, she's not really part of like what you would call the hippie scene, but she was very much part of the counterculture, including uh, pretty heavy involvement in drugs and uh, party life, uh, kind of, you know, experimental art avant-garde films through Andy Warhol's factory scene, um, and just really kind of out there on the cutting edge of kind of culture and style and uh, kind of the, the the breaking loose of, of this uh, baby boomer generation that was just coming of age in the mid-60s. Chow Manhattan is a film that kind of captures her last years, really. It was a film that was begun in 1967, uh, kind of an incoherent script, kind of trying to provide a bit of a, a document of her fast-paced lifestyle as well as the other people around her. Uh, it was filmed in black and white and, uh, you know, just very much a, a reflection of the chaotic scene from which it emerged. The The scene was so chaotic, there was so much you know, drug abuse and just kind of incoherence that kind of permeated the whole production that after months of filming they basically just had all of these random snippets self-indulgent uh, little you know meanderings that uh, really presented a film that could not be assembled into anything meaningful uh, she went in to receive different levels of uh, psychiatric intervention she was hospitalized she went into rehab she went through the whole routine and emerged in the late 60s early 70s somewhat rehabilitated, at least enough to uh, get the production back on track. And so there's another section of the film, which is kind of the more of the frame of the, of the entire film that's filmed in color uh, on an estate in Arcadia, California, that the, the, the uh, production had access to. It's kind of a, a mansion of sorts, but it was in kind of a rundown, dilapidated condition. And that was basically the environment where they filmed this framing story about a young woman named Susan Superstar. And they kind of wove in those older black and white bits into the middle of the film as kind of retro flashbacks as this uh, Susan character was giving uh, kind of her drug-addled, hazy memory recollections of her life just a few years earlier when she was at the heart of the New York City fashion scene and kind of an icon in her own right. Uh, she, she meets up with a guy named Butch. He's kind of a drifter from Texas who's made his way out to Malibu and is just kind of looking for something to do with his life, looking for strange things as he kind of describes it when somebody's asking him what what's what's he doing what's he about he ends up uh running into susan um ed sedgwick uh who's out there hitchhiking with her blouse off basically exposing herself her upper upper half there she's got a jacket on but as they say her tits are hanging out and uh, he picks her up brings her back she's got some dog tags on so he can identify where she lives and he gets drawn up into this world that, uh, you know, he doesn't really know what to make of it. He's kind of an innocent rube way over his head as far as what's going on around him. And uh, and that's basically the device that they use to tell this story. Now, after the filming had been concluded, they were in the editing process. Edie Sedgwick herself died from a barbiturate overdose. She had been married just a couple months earlier. Seemed 
at least to be trying to get her life back on track, but uh, she died at the age of 28 from a significant drug overdose, whether that was suicidal, accidental, just uh, death by misadventure. I guess there's probably uh, some literature that would try to sort that out. I haven't really delved so so deeply into it to have an opinion on uh, you know the exact circumstances of her passing, but clearly it was a pretty tragic situation all the way around that this young woman so full of life and vibrancy and again you know just a very visually appealing person to to look at um you know basically seemed like a doomed figure almost from the start so that's that's my little synopsis of chow manhattan it's a film that definitely has some intriguing moments there's a, a fascinating soundtrack there are some pretty funny interludes there, and there's also a sense of tragedy and perhaps exploitation. And I've certainly seen a lot of angry reviews of this film who really take the film to task for not doing more to help her. But before I get into what other people have to say, let's hear a little bit of what Richard and David thought about uh, Chow Manhattan. So Richard, this was your first time encountering this film. What'd you think? Uh, I, I hate this film. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I'd heard about it years ago and was somewhat intrigued because there were things about it that don't make sense. If you just read a synopsis, like the idea that she was living in a swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's uh, decorated I, with all of these posters of her modeling career. And it's like this sort of warped hippie fantasy hangout crash pad. Right. Yeah. I was really disposed to like this film. I thought, <laughs> yeah. So I, I was giving it like a, probably the best shot I was, I, I've given a film in quite a while, but I think it wore me down. Yeah. Uh, one, I, I think the footage that they'd shot that it, and abandoned is almost universally not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are little bits of it. I like there's a monologue by Bridget Polk in a bathroom stall that I thought was kind of compelling. She's that large woman who's kind of yeah. shooting up and giving her philosophy of the the, yeah. the, the upside of methamphetamine. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. she she's in later Warhol films and okay. John Waters films in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yep. Um, but generally, I thought that stuff was confused and trying to work in some plot, like some crime or spy plot that I could never make it. Yeah. Mr. Verdecchio and Paul America and the cocaine smuggling operation. And he's sort of this, this mastermind who's running the operation behind the scenes, almost like conspiracy theory type of stuff. But you're right. It never really cohered into anything that made any impact or sense. And and I think I finally do lean into the opinion that the seventies material is exploitative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, there are sequences in it of her like dancing around topless in her underwear where she looks extremely intoxicated. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is not acting thinking, here, right? Yeah, sitting and thinking, I don't know that it's <laughs> at all right to just be pointing a camera at this and, and let it go. Mm-hmm. So it had its moments. I think most mm-hmm. of the cast are pretty bad and most of the footage is pretty bad. And it was a slog by the time it was over. Okay. Is that pretty much your synopsis or your summary right there? I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, David, go, go ahead and give us your thoughts. Well, you know, uh, 
Richard's view is very much my own. I, I went into this with great interest because I'd, I'd heard of it. And I, uh, you know, like like any film, I go in with the sort of best of intentions of being mm -hmm. open-minded and, and trying to uh, get something of value out of it. But I just found the the whole thing very painful mm -hmm. there i and just like richard i my my overall um feeling of it is i just really disliked it intensely it was one of those those films that but sort of the last half hour i would say it was one of those times which is very rare when i when i was literally just sitting there going god is this gonna is this over mm -hmm. soon mm -hmm. is this mm -hmm. gonna be done because i just found the whole thing to be uh, painful. Uh, um, I couldn't work out whether it was trying to be a comedy or trying to be a documentary or just trying to, uh, you know, I don't know. The only character in the entire film that I actually liked was was his name Butch, the, the yeah, young man yeah. who picked her up and took her home because he would qu quite often make little comments and asides uh, of his observations about the kind of things he was seeing. And I think he very often sort of uh, captured kind of my sense of it is that uh, that these people are all, um, you kind of have to feel a bit sorry for them and the way uh, their lifestyles and their, um, their kind of disregard for each other's feelings, their estrangement. I think Richard has nailed it right on the head about how exploitative it is that, that this woman uh, they're just filming and she's clearly just on another planet. You can see mm -hmm. in her eyes that there's very often she has that sort of Furt Wangler look like she's looking off into another universe yeah. and she's just not there. So there, there's some quite troubling connotations there about just consent. Uh, the fact that they just film um, all this footage of her just rolling around talking incoherently with no clothes on. And, uh, and they cut in these um, uh, sort of audio clips of her reminiscing about her time with Andy Warhol. But all those um, clips, uh, apparently, from what I understand, she was on barbiturates. Um, and, and it's implied that it was on purpose that they wanted her to reminisce while she was under the influence of these mind-altering substances. Mm -hmm. So there's a real sort of strain of, of uh, real... Um, um, distaste to, to to that side of it um i personally like i would like in watching this film mostly the the thing that it brought to my mind mostly is i don't i'm sure you've you've all had these experiences of when you're kind of out with friends or you you have a company over or something like this and you end up in the company of someone who's completely wasted either on alcohol mm -hmm. or or drugs or something else and there you know sometimes that can be a really um, unpleasant experience being around somebody who's in that kind of uh, situation. And that's kind of what this film felt like to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. and, and, and there is just this whole strain of just real sadness about it because we know the, the outcome of this, that she, the, 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 the woman's had a, a, a quite, um, uh, you know, a life uh, with her in terms of the relations with her family She's had mental health problems. She, her relationship, uh, when she uh, fell in with Andy Warhol's crowd, it seems like he just sort of used her and then sort of uh, flung her away when he kind of got a bit bored of her or they had some kind of falling out. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, 
the whole thing just is really sad and and just really uh tiresome by the end just like richard said i i think i really was getting really fed up of it by the end and just was hoping it was going to be over soon so i could turn it off <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i don't fault anybody for having that reaction i think i had very similar response on my first go around richard were you going to add something there no no oh, okay i thought i heard somebody say something so okay well you know and I did watch it again this morning just to kind of, I actually got up early because it had been a couple weeks since I first sat through it. I watched it again, kind of knowing the whole flow of it and found it maybe a little less off-putting or alienating than when I first, you know, encountered it. Cause I had all those same feelings like this poor woman, you know, why, why did they just sort of sit there gawking and capturing all of this and almost egging her on, um, you know, as I, as I listened to some of her monologues, again, some of her, what you would really have to say is a pretty strong endorsement of the drug experience, the, the her, her, uh, enjoyment of that sensation. Speed is the ultimate all time high. That first rush. Wow. Just that burning, searing, soaring sense of perfection like oh god a 24 hour climax that can go Just on for days to a city or to a country to the country to an island near the sea I mean, I can live there happily ever after. There's no way to explain it unless you've been through it. There's no way to tell anyone who hasn't tasted it. I'd like to turn the whole world on just for a moment. Just for a moment. Her wish that she could just turn the whole world on and this this feeling of perfection and of, of energy that she got from it. I mean, that is sort of the classic start of the cycle, isn't it? When you're first, you know, for people who have used these substances or, or, or gotten, you know, into the, the whole cycle of addiction, there is that euphoric, there is that energy, there is that sense of almost like discovery and, and infinite possibilities that kind of comes with the territory when you are first having those experiences. And that is, to me, sort of what this film functions as, uh, as a documentary of the counterculture drug scene um, from the inside. I, I think the, the people who are making this film, and perhaps Edie Sedgwick in her own way, uh, under the influence on the kind of you know, arc of, uh, of her life that she was on, felt like this was the message they wanted to put out there. And so I think in that sense, she wasn't completely a victim of, of, uh, you know, manipulative Svengali's at this point, uh, you know, that that's maybe debatable. I mean, you'd, you'd have to sort of almost go back and do research and figure out who were the people making this. But I felt like this was sort of her choice in life. This is who she was. This is who she wanted to be. Uh, and I feel like, you know, the sympathy and even the anger that I saw in a lot of reviews about this film where they are very much um, showing 
sympathy, maybe even pity, even a, a desire to fight for, you know, somehow reclaiming um, Edie Sedgwick's reputation. You know, she deserved better. I won't. I won't dispute any of that, except to say that you know Edie Sedgwick was, you know, making her own choices and and putting this out there cooperatively, voluntarily. And I feel a lot of the, you know, the, um, the pity we feel for her is because she has this extremely vulnerable childlike side. I mean, I'm, I'm even talking about like the visuals of her face. She has a, a very pretty clean face, you know, uh, nice figure, all of that type of thing. And, and it, it just sort of creates this, this, uh, desire to want to shelter and rescue and, and, and take care of this vulnerable um, and also beautiful young woman. Now, Richard, earlier, I think it was today, you posted a picture of Sid Vicious on your timeline on Facebook. Was there any thought about Sid Vicious connected to this film, or was that something completely unrelated? Because I had a lot of thoughts about Sid Vicious as I was watching this. That that was unrelated, but okay. But it's, it's interesting. I, I'd say... I'd split this film in half along the lines you're talking about. Okay, right? sure. On the older footage, I'd, I'd agree. Like, it's true that you know everybody's using drugs when making the um, the black and white footage, mm-hmm. and um, to some extent, they know what they're doing. I mean, it's actually it's kind of funny. One of the things to note, uh, like her co-star in that footage, Paul America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You notice that he's in jail at the end of this film? Yeah, just south of where I live, actually, down in Allegan yeah. County here in Michigan. <laughs> That's because he's actually in jail. Right, right. I know. It's, he, it's he, apparently, re- he apparently drove off, like just drove away from the film in midstream and ended up in Michigan there in jail. Yep. Yeah. And they yep. found him. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'd throw that in to say it's not like they're completely in control of what they're doing, obviously. Right. But right. I think they are making choices there. Um, I think I'd question in the color footage from what can be seen, how capable she is of making choices. And that's where I'd sort of split the difference. Mm -hmm. Apparently she, she was interested in sort of reinvigorating her career at that point. She wanted Mm -hmm. to make the film. She wanted to salvage what they'd done and try and make something of it. So she was, you know, an interested party in the creation of the film, but, Uh, when you watch it, like, you know, you talk about, like, I could never really get from the tone of the film, whether it was um, a film that was celebrating her and asking us to feel uh, sorry for the way things turned out, or whether, you know, because at times there was a lot of sort of bad attempts at comedy. And and there was these sort of tangents that it went off on with these, uh, you know, this, um, this other chap who, you know, I can't even remember what he wanted to do. I don't know if he was like a, a wealthy uh, businessman or something. And, and Butch went off with him for a bit and seemed to be quite taken. Uh, and he had aspirations to build a UFO, which actually, you know, is a perfectly valid <laughs> aspiration, I would um, like to point out. But um, the, the film just kind of meandered off into these tangents and there was no real clear focus and you could never really, or at least I couldn't from the way that I interpreted it, I could never work out what exactly they were trying to accomplish. Were they trying to celebrate 
um, this young lady or were they just, uh, you know, trying to, um, you know, somehow salvage some kind of story out of it all. Yeah. Um, and, and through the whole thing, she, like Richard said, uh, she just doesn't seem like she's necessarily in the right place uh, to, to actually make a, a meaningful contribution to, to the whole thing. She just seems to be off in her own little world half of the time. And whether that was whether they they were doing that deliberately because they thought that that was kind of meant to be amusing or whether there was something else going on, I could never work it out. And I think that's the main problem I had with the film mm -hmm. is that I just I just didn't know exactly what the real point of it was trying to make. So I could only project my own feelings, uh, bring my own views about what they were doing and and about her behavior and everyone else's behavior that's all I could do is just project my own sort of take onto it. Yeah. I mean, I think in that sense, it is almost like sort of like a, a hallucinogenic drug trip. It's not really <laughs> good or bad. It's just what you make of it. And it's coming out of that sort of whole mindset. I mean, the film is dedicated to her. You know, I think there's a statement at the beginning in text that says she died suddenly. Well, they didn't really reference why she died. I'm sure they knew why and how she died they so they try to invoke some kind of a solemnity or some kind of commemorative aspect here and the film apparently did get some critically you know positive reviews it's become uh, what the wikipedia calls a cult classic uh, i'm sure that there are probably communities cities where they would put this up on the screen and there'd be a little coterie of ed sedgwick fans who would want to come and see that and perhaps in a packed theater, there might be a different vibe in the air than what we got watching it solo in our, you know, various, uh, you know, living rooms or, or wherever, like me watching it on my phone this morning. Um, so yeah, I think I, I, I'm, cause I'm yeah. so far removed from that sort of sure. time. Like I don't even really like with the, with the whole thing about her involvement with Andy Warhol, yeah. like I could be wrong, but I don't know. I've never really seen any of the, Andy Warhol films. I've always read about them and heard mm -hmm. about them, but I've never really had an opportunity to see any of the short films that he made during that period and all these things. I don't know if they're somehow commercially available or somehow there would be a way for me to see them. So for me, I was coming into this completely cold and I don't have any uh, sort of um, connection with that time period and those. I can imagine for the people who were there, and, and uh, who were uh, in that sort of clique of, of people and, and who were doing those things, for them, perhaps it may have a different uh, feeling and, and, and evoke different things for them because they were there and maybe they knew her. But, but for me, I can only look at it as an outsider with no real connection to it. And obviously I'm disconnected to it from it by, by you know, how long it's been, like 50 years or whatever. Yeah since all these things went on. So I can only look at it with those eyes. So mm -hmm. I think maybe that's the, the problem with the film is it doesn't really pull someone in and say, look at how great all this stuff was and wasn't it wonderful. Mm -hmm. it, it's more just sort of like there and you kind of look at it and you think, yeah, that doesn't look so great. And she wound up, uh, wound up dead from a drug overdose. So that's horrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that, that's how I see it. 
Yeah, well, she she lived fast and she died young, and that's kind of part of the cult, isn't it? She's she's never aged. She never became just a a regular old middle aged person. She she sort of died in the prime and beauty of her youth. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, I should probably throw in. I am a fan of this stuff, and I don't think this is a very good version of it whatsoever. <laughs> I, I think a lot okay. of the um, a lot of what David's identifying about having it being a little bit difficult to figure out what the point of the film is, is I think they're emulating mm-hmm. Warhol and Paul Morrissey to a large degree, and they're really just not very good at it, right? It, it's not sufficient to get interesting people and point a camera at them and hope the results work out, which is what I think they're doing for a lot of this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think there is a lot of that, right? Like we're so beautiful, we're so rad, we're so like you know avant garde and 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 willing to step over whatever boundaries. But that in itself does not make for interesting or engaging art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we we've got an artifact, we've got a memento, and obviously, if you are big into Edie Sedgwick and and you know that that whole scene, the mythology of the factory and that era in the '60s captures your imagination this is probably you know not essential viewing but probably it's got a lot of valuable content just to learn more about that i don't know uh, david if you've ever seen uh, the william klein film who are you polly magoo but that might be sort of a point of entry in that kind of mid-60s fashion scene with twiggy and and other you know kind of top end models i think that's where Edie cedric was kind of that was her niche in in terms of uh, sort of the fashion world and, and all of that. But she very much got swept into, uh, you know, a, a scene that in many ways just devoured her. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, she kind of wrote her ticket and that's where it led. And I guess I do want to go back to my Sid Vicious uh, sort of analogies, as well as many other, you know, there's that whole mythology of the rock star who dies at age 27. We can go back to Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, uh, who am I forgetting? Oh, Kurt Cobain uh, from a later generation. And even though she was actually 28 when she died, but it's that same kind of idea. But with Sid Vicious, he was a a very self-destructive young man. And, and um, obviously there are people who mourn the wastefulness of his, of his life and death. And he did kill people or he killed his girlfriend. I think that's pretty well established and was a much more aggressive, violent, mean spirited person in some ways, but that wasn't the whole, the whole, you know, long and short of the, the, the life of Sid Vicious either. But, uh, you know, it's just, I, I do feel like, yeah, there's this kind of um, desire to protect and, and defend uh, a young woman like Edie that doesn't necessarily get extended to other young people who get caught up in drug abuse and it ends up, uh, you know, cutting their life much, much shorter than it would have otherwise. So, all right, have we done enough with uh, Chow Manhattan then? We can say goodbye. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you one, there's one Probably. interesting connection to the three yeah. of us being previously sure. on this podcast. The co-director of this film is the guy who bought the rights to Lone Wolf and Cub and put together Samurai as a Shogun Assassin. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so who David was that? David Wiseman. David okay. Wiseman. Oh, that's right, yeah. I actually never picked up on that. Actually, that's really fascinating. Yeah, that's well, what he did right after this film released. He, as a follow-up project, he bought the rights to Lone Wolf and Cup. Well, oh, I guess 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a nice, uh, nice salvage job. Nice, nice redemption there. Cause I think that was a pretty <laughs> fantastic series and we're very thankful of course that he brought it over to the States. Uh, well, let's go ahead and, and talk about back over to the States. Let's, let's talk about, um, Greaser's Palace. This is from Robert Downey Sr. So Richard, you're going to kind of walk us into that one. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'll say it's sort of a bit of an intro. I, not sure that the plot details of a Robert Downey film are all that important to <laughs> appreciating the film. Right. But I'll give sort of a, a high level what happens in this film. Uh, it's a Western of sorts. It's uh, centers around a saloon owned by a guy named Seawood Greaser, hence Greaser's Palace, who kind of runs the town with an iron hand, collects taxes and uh, has trouble going to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so a Jesus figure played by Alan Arbus uh, appears, falls from the sky, uh, seems to not completely know who he is, but says he's going to Jerusalem to become a song and dance man. And he performs a series of miracles, ends up in Greaser's town, Stages a musical number and wows the crowd, uh, taking the star spot away from Greaser's daughter, played by Luana Anders. And uh, then he's crucified by Robert Downey's wife. Yes. And and those that, that whole thread of um, Elsie Downey, as she's a nameless character, a woman, she has a son who's killed by Indians that whole story is just sort of advances by these little insert yeah. shots that really do not make any sense in your first viewing at all. I mean, eventually you start to recognize that there's a sequence that's going on here and you figure it'll come together at some point, but it's, it's very like if, if you blink and turn away or get a little bit distracted or lose, lose focus, those scenes will just roll past and you won't really have any concept of what's going on there. So yeah, so you you want to give us a basic assessment? What? How did you feel this film worked as far as a Robert Downey Sr. Uh, production? I'm a very big fan of Downey, uh, but I'd say among his like early films, this is like my probably my least favorite of his. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I think, from what I can tell, he probably has more money here than he's had in any other film. And yeah, that's I, that's. <laughs> And I think it, it, it kind of adversely impacts the film a bit because he has a tendency in most of his other films to mostly just let his absurdist humor run like through a, a fairly loose plot structure. And here the plot structure isn't as loose as it is in some of his other films, which might sound, sound astounding to someone if they've only seen <laughs> this film. Yeah. But I thought a lot of business in this film that happens kind of drags it down a little bit for me. Mm -hmm. That said, I really like this film. This is the this is the one I volunteered for first, right? Right. This episode because I, I I do enjoy his sense of humor. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's just a lot of odd sides of this film that somehow sometimes feel like they're advancing a plot that could possibly be less could, less concerned. He should could be less concerned with. Yeah, I, I want to pick apart some of those things, but let's go ahead and get David's take on it. Uh, this was a new one to you, so how how deep are you into Robert Downey Sr.'s world, and, and what did you think about this one? Uh, 
not very deep at all, I'm afraid. He's, okay, he's someone who I've, I'm not, aside from, uh, what, what's it called? Uh, uh, Put- Putney Swope. Swope. Yeah. Putney mm-hmm. Swope. That, that's the only other film of his that I've ever seen. Okay. Um, and I do I do enjoy that film. I like it. Um, and I really enjoyed this one. It, um, uh, I guess, like, I have no idea exactly what he was trying to achieve or say, or maybe he wasn't trying to achieve anything. He was just having fun because it's a very playful film. It's, it's very, uh, I like the, the kind of inventiveness of it and the, the, the just sort of, um, you know, kind of going with the flow of it. And that's kind of how I approached it. Um, and I enjoyed it. There were little bits of it that uh, I found, like there was no real laugh out loud comedic moments for me, but there was lots of times when I uh, would have had a smile on my face and thought, oh, that's kind of, kind of good. I mean, I like the bits when they sometimes did those long tracking shots when, the, when someone says, oh, um, so-and-so's outside. And then they, they would just show them thumping along and walking, tracking them along, walking for a really long time. And those mm-hmm. kind of bits, I just love those, that kind of thing where they kind of, you know, sort of play with your expectations or just do little visual gags. And I love the bit when uh, Alan Arbus uh, first enters because the the whole film's established as a western and you see all the cowboys and the dusty kind of frontier aspect and then all of a sudden this uh, guy in a in a in a sort of zoot suit kind of yep. parachutes in <laughs> uh you know looking a bit like cab calloway and he mm-hmm. sort of you know drops down in and uh and uh, there's all the these allusions to him kind of being a like a Christ figure, the dancing on the water and stuff. Mm-hmm. But but there isn't really any, at least from 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 my point of view, from what I took from it, I didn't really see that he was necessarily making any specific points about religion or about uh, Jesus or about anything else. He was just kind of being playful and having mm-hmm. fun, kind of. Uh, mirroring the 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 Jesus story, but through this through Cab Calloway, I guess <laughs> uh, you know in the in the West, and and it yeah. was it was just fun. It was just an enjoyable um, enjoyable hour and a half to spend. I I liked it. It was amusing. I I, I couldn't really. I mean, I still find myself thinking about it and trying to work out if if there was any real kind of point to it or whether it was just meant to be a bit of fun and and that's okay to just be a bit of fun though and it worked on that level for me anyway well i think downey you know senior um and we'll just call him downey from this point we we know this is robert downey jr's dad obviously but you know his, his thing is kind of um sat satire i mean he he, he lampoons and uh, kind of likes to you know puncture the bubbles of the of the high and mighty he definitely plays in scatological humor and kind of absurdity for its own sake but but definitely kind of on the naughty side you know, he, he's definitely likes to you know throw things out there for a little bit of shock value breaking taboos of course you know he started making films in the early 1960s when there was still a lot more uptightness uh, in the culture and you know even just dropping an f-bomb or you know making some reference to certain portions of anatomy might be enough just to kind of get a reaction and, and, a, and a cheap laugh uh, to me I'm, I'm kind of where where richard's coming from where I, I think this is probably less enjoyable 
than the films that are in the Up All Night with Robert Downey Sr. Eclipse series set, which is basically the only other stuff that I've seen of his, but which I've really enjoyed. You know, back when I was covering the Eclipse series, I, you know, I blogged and, and wrote about these films, did a podcast with Trevor about them. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed that kind of subversive uh, anarchic wit. This here to me feels like a follow-up to Putney Swope, which I thought was a much more successful film. And rather than, you know, building on themes that he'd already tackled, you know, the the kind of black consciousness and black power that was kind of prevalent at the time, advertising, uh, corporate, big business, you know, capitalism, greed, money, he's going to shift his targets a little bit to talk about Westerns and talk about religion and, and make jokes that are, again, kind of getting into some of those frontiers of, of uh, you know, topical humor that's going to raise the hackles of the more you know, prudish potential viewers of the audience and, and play to people who, you know, style themselves as somewhat, you know, rebellious hellraisers and, and all of that. But I, I feel like because he is taking on these themes and, and not really nailing them or not really uh, making any kind of uh, pungent or pointed observations, it, it felt like kind of meandering to me. I, you know, he did get a budget. It is in color. The, the films in the uh, Robert Downey Sr. Eclipse set are all in black and white, although I think Putney Swope has some color sequences in it, some of those advertisements, uh, the parodies that he does. This here felt probably like the most um, accomplished production as far as filming and, and all of that. But yeah, I felt there was just, you know, it could have probably been about a, a half an hour shorter. Some of those pieces could have been tightened up a little bit. So that, that was basically my take on it. I, I felt like he was taking some big swings, but when they didn't really land or they just felt inconsequential, it kind of cut against what I thought he might be trying to accomplish there. His target feels very small, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. I don't mean like small yeah. in importance, but it seems to be a thing about religion being a, quite a bit of, like the organization of religion being a bit like a show and, and, and yeah. the, substance, the substance being lost. It's not an inconsequential point, but it doesn't feel like a point for an hour and a half movie. Right. Yeah. And there are, there are other pieces, you know, the, you know, the, the interactions with Indians, Native Americans. I mean, yeah, there's definitely stuff where he's, you know, he's trying to be kind of outrageous and, you know, to a certain extent he is, but you know, so what? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's nothing. There are little bits, um, you know, like the the little um, bit with the man and the the Indian, the little Indian statuette or whatever that he, mm-hmm. you, you know, uses to gratify himself and things like that. I think all those little bits were kind of meant, and maybe in 1972 they they were quite, they might have been quite provocative and shocking or something. I don't know, uh, but the whole thing was done in such a tone that it's it's it was just quite enjoyable. I just mm-hmm. found myself. Uh, just going along with it i just wanted to point out too that here in the uk i wasn't able the only way i could watch this film is i i had to rent it on amazon prime and the the master that they had which oddly enough was branded with uh, shout factory uh Hmm. it had shout factory branding on it but it, it quite clearly was um kind of mastered from a VHS tape or something, wow. the quality of it. it was in standard definition. It was very fuzzy and you could see the sort of tracking lines and stuff. So it looked like someone had just ripped a VHS tape of the film and put it online there. That's, that's what it looked like. So you could tell 
that uh, the the quality of the production, the cinematography, and everything looked really good. But the from the the, the copy that I was watching wasn't particularly good. So I, I think um, I'm quite intrigued that you say it's on the Criterion Channel and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it looks good there. Weather. Yeah, does it? Okay, so I don't know what the story is there. Um, and you mentioned the Eclipse set because um, I, I've, I've never gotten around to getting that. I kind of stopped buying yeah. the Eclipse sets because I was always hoping that there'd be Blu-ray right. versions. I, I sort of got to that point where I didn't fancy buying DVDs too much anymore. You know, well, this is a pretty good Eclipse set. It's a cheap one, if, if that matters. And and you get a bunch of really enjoyable... Some of the early films are like 45 minutes, you know. They just really come in. And this is when he was truly an underground filmmaker, you know, just kind of scrapping together whatever film stock he could, filming a few bits. Uh, he does some kind of re- reality stunts where he gets a guy walking onto the field at Yankee Stadium in the middle of a game, you know, pulling off a stunt there. And, and those those films really do feel like uh, kind of guerrilla filmmaking of, of a, a pretty enjoyable order. They're not, you know, like what you say, quality films, but it is his kind of go for broke recklessness that is, you know, a big part of the attraction here. Here, he's, I think he does have a, a big budget. He was actually called in to, to produce this film uh, with somebody who had a lot of money and they wanted him to make it. So he said, sure, I'll take you up on it. And maybe because he didn't have to, uh, you know, fight so hard or swim upstream, um, uh, it, it became a little bit almost too comfortable for for his style of filmmaking. Just a, a speculation there. It might be the case. His like he does make some good lit films like later in the seventies, but when mm-hmm. it comes to the eighties, and he he does try to do like real films, so to speak. Yeah, like he he directed the the Mad Magazine movie up the Academy. Okay, they're, sure. They're almost universally awful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's someone who plays well with like real money and real schedules, et cetera, et cetera. I think he's best as a guerrilla filmmaker. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are people like that. You know, yeah. But- so this is part of a bundle on the Criterion Channel called the Cinema Five Story. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about Cinema Five. Richard, do you have any? Uh, no, I don't actually. Okay, okay. Because it's on the poster actually, and and let me see if I can look it up real quick um because the the list of films in that bundle are are pretty impressive and so apparently it was like a chain of movie theaters i'm just looking at the page right now and um you know so you look at this this uh you you starting with uh truffaut's the soft skin kind of one of his early hitchcock tributes there uh, jumping ahead, The Fireman's Ball, Milos Forman, Z, Gimme Shelter, WR, Mysteries of the Organism, Greaser's Palace is in there, Putney's what we've already mentioned, but uh, the, the scenes from a marriage, the Ingmar Bergman uh, theatrical version, State of Siege, another Costa Gavras film, uh, a couple by Lena Wertmuller, Swept Away in Seven Beauties, The Man Who Fell to Earth, uh, Harlan County, USA. I mean, it's a pretty fascinating uh, collection of films, and apparently there's this Mr. Rugoff, um, Donald Rugoff, he was the crazy genius behind Cinema 5, the groundbreaking mid-century theater chain that uh, kind of brought these films, uh, most of them overseas, you know, foreign films or documentaries produced kind of more on the independent or underground level to uh, some kind of a mainstream audience. So 
it's a bundle that I think will be leaving the channel fairly soon. But and a lot of these are, of course, Criterion discs that might be available in people's collections otherwise. But uh, Pumping Iron, that's another fascinating document from the 1977. So it seems like a chain that had its kind of heyday back in the 70s with Greaser's Palace being one of those releases. So, yeah, maybe a, a little tip to investigate a little bit further. Uh, I'll have to do my own investigating to say more about Cinema 5, but it's a pretty uh, eclectic mix of films there, to say the least. Well, I think I'm I'm very much, I mean, the, the main thing I take away from Greaser's Palace and having mm-hmm. seen Putney Swope before and, and hearing your comments, I might sort of search out the clip set and... God, I'd like to dig a bit deeper, I think, into yeah. uh, Robert Downey Sr. and, and uh, see some more of his stuff. Because uh, obviously, uh, I've always been quite aware of him and his reputation sort of uh, precedes him. But I've just never really had an opportunity to to see the films. Uh, so it was nice to have a chance to watch this one. And I, I really did enjoy it. Um yeah. I just didn't know what he was what he was really going for, but I guess maybe if I had more of a um, uh, experience with some of his other films and his style and things like that, then maybe I th- that would put this film more in that context that I would be able to take something more away from it. Hmm. Okay, yeah, a couple of interesting cameos. Tony Basil, she's of course the singer for Hey Mickey, a pretty vintage 80s pop classic and also did a lot of dance choreography she's the one who's running around on horseback bare-chested another <laughs> young woman with her tits hanging out uh in this film like uh, we saw Edie Sedgwick in the first one that and then seems her... to be a thing around in the early 70s really wasn't it <laughs> like you, you could yeah, get, you could get away with it exactly <laughs> <laughs> and then Hervé Villachez he he was a tattoo on uh, Fantasy Island the Ricardo Montalban sidekick uh this is him from a few years before he became much more famous, uh, popping up for a brief moment or two there. Well, even Alan Arbus, he's, he's, yeah. I recognize him mainly. Uh, he went on to have a sort of recurring role in the TV version of MASH, didn't he? The, the television series. He, he was in that for years, wasn't he? Kind of popped in and out as a recurring character. I think he was like a doctor or a psychiatrist or something. Okay. He's Diane Arbus's husband. Just a, just a little bit. Right. She, she's a photographer. Diane Arbus, a pretty famous fashion photographer. So another kind of perhaps maybe she took Edie Sedgwick's pictures for Vogue. Who knows? I mean, I could, I could see that happening. Uh, another uh, behind-the-scenes connection perhaps. All right. Any final comments on uh, Greaser's Palace or do we want to cut down over? Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. is in this film. Oh, that's right. Well, he's the kid, right? He's yeah. he's the boy who's toted on horseback, and he does make some appearances in some of these Robert Downey Sr. films. In fact, I was going to say Two Tons of Turquoise to Taos Tonight is the last and longest film. I think it's longer than Putney Swope, but uh, anyways, it's, it's the last film in that Eclipse set, and it has a lot of... Um, incoherence uh commonality with what we see, saw in chow manhattan another film that seems to be made under the influence that. of drugs <laughs> but I love that film. <laughs> yeah 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 and and robert downey jr does pop up there along with elsie uh robert downey senior's wife at the time so yeah it's uh, funny though whatever happened to him he did those couple of films in the 70s and then what happened to him robert I mean, uh, yeah 
Um, it's, <laughs> Sorry, it's, I'm just being. I'm making a joke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Iron Man, isn't he? Oh, uh, he went here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, he had a modest, successful career. You know, could never quite get out of his dad's shadow there, but you know, he made something. <laughs> no, of himself. No, he pops up every <laughs> once in a while, doesn't he? He's, yeah. he's pretty loyal. He's in one of his dad's films, uh, like around 1990 or so oh okay well yeah. I, I were those kind of the lean years for robert downey yeah. jr yeah. he was he was in his rehab and his uh you know all of his trouble his 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 dark valley there that he had to go through before he emerged to bigger and better things all right well let's go ahead and talk about bone so david we're going to let you do the the intro uh walking on that one. Oh, sure okay uh yeah bone is uh uh, a very interesting film. It, it's essentially uh, a story of a home invasion. Uh, it's a it's a Larry Cohen film. Who Larry Cohen is someone who uh, I guess kind of came up the ranks as a writer primarily uh, in the kind of the sixties. He wrote a lot of television. It seems he was quite prolific, uh, and this was his directorial debut. Uh, and it seems to be, as I said, it's a home invasion story about a, a wealthy uh, couple in uh, Los Angeles who um, one day get visited by a uh, by Yafet Koto, the great Yafet Koto, who uh, who um, uh, he's a I guess a criminal. I, I I'm, I'm trying to remember now because it's been a few days since I watched mm-hmm. it, but the. Um, I think was he escape an escaped convict or he's just a, a kind of a, a yeah he just he just shows up I, I think he yeah. says he just picked out the the most expensive looking house on the street uh, yeah. with the intention of robbing and and you know creating some kind of mayhem just he figures there's got to be wealth here he needs some money and and that was pretty much it yeah so so yeah and then, so basically he's a, a kind of a, a sudden disruptive influence in this uh what what seems at the beginning to be a uh, a very um well-to-do uh, urban couple uh successful um although we see signs even from the beginning that there might be uh sort of issues uh underneath all this yeah he, uh, and, the, the the husband of the couple is a car salesman i think that's pretty important because it's established right off the i mean the fact the opening scene is kind of like a, a nightmarish dream sequence where he's doing yeah. his late night tv ads he's a he's a pitch man he's the face of this auto dealership and he's in a junkyard and he's he, you, you discover soon enough that he's having a nightmare but uh yeah the the, the, the kind of all the cliches about used car salesmen kind of come to the forefront here because that's how he's made his wealth but it's it's really kind of a scam but go ahead yeah i know that the imagery in the background in this dream is like he starts to see dead bodies and uh, young uh, sort of young people uh, who are all bloody and in the back seats of the cars and things like this. And so it's sort of uh, suggesting this, uh, what's b- the, this horror that's bubbling underneath, or maybe the, the sort of the, the human cost of, uh, of, of all this, uh, uh consumer sort of shiny consumer, uh, mm-hmm. goodness that, uh, that, uh, that is on the surface. And we learn this uh, gradually about the couple as well, that there's uh, where, whereas Yafet Kodo uh, picks them out primarily because he sees them as this, you know, they have a perfect life. They have a nice, big, huge, fancy property and they they have a lovely swimming pool and they 
you know, we're quite wealthy and from on the surface, they seem really happy. So he sort of deliberately picks them out uh, uh, to victimize uh, to, and they're a focus of his rage. Uh, but what happens through the course of the film is that we learn in both cases uh, that uh, all is not quite as it seems, or at least we learn in both cases, in both the the sort of perfect affluent white couple and the uh, the so the criminal uh, uh, black person who's 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 come to invade their home, they're they're both kind of stereotypes uh, mm-hmm. of what what people's uh, uh, what they, they would expect of each other. Uh, but then, as the film progresses, that they, they, we we they become more humanized, and we learn a little bit more detail about uh, both sides of it. So um, the film sort of uh, starts uh, to ask you to question these these kind of roles that 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 both sides have have been placed in. Because as the film progresses, uh, uh, basically the this bone character, Yefet Kodo's character, is. Uh, He's come to rob them and he sends the husband off to the bank to take some money out. Uh, uh, and he says that if you're not back by a certain time, uh, I'm going to basically rape and kill your wife. Uh, so off you go and be make sure you're back here by 3.30 or uh, it's, you know, I'm going to do, do all these horrible things. But then what happens is, is the husband goes off and at first he's in a rush and he's saying, I got to hurry. I got to do this. I got to get this money back. I got to get back. Uh, but then gradually he seems to lose his impetus and he starts to sort of slow down and he starts to question about whether, you know, what he's doing and, and he sort of seems to lose focus and decide, well, actually it, it's kind of like, although he's maybe not doing it consciously, he's kind of deliberately um, going over, the allotted time <laughs> so that <laughs> he's basically sort of leaving his wife to, to fend for herself in this horrible situation. And then there's a little side story where he meets another lady uh, and he goes off with her and has a sort of, he gets uh, kind of sucked into her world. And, uh, and there's all sorts of uh, interesting things about her psychology and her, lifestyle uh that we learn about that we can talk about more in depth i'm just trying to summarize sure. but it's a bit difficult because the film's quite uh, layered and there's a lot going on um so anyway and then back at home uh the the yafet uh, koto character and the 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 wife begin to um de- essentially develop a relationship they begin to talk about what's uh, happening with them with each other and we start to uh, dig a little bit deeper into their characters and they actually sort of develop a relationship um, and uh, and then decide that they're going to go and murder the husband for his insurance money. And um, so they go to, to chase him down <laughs> and yeah. kill him. So yeah. basically that, that is the, the, as best I could, a high level, sort of description of the the basic storyline but obviously yeah. there's lots of details to that we can dig into as we go along talking about it well i think what's interesting and this is 
definitely into spoiler territory is how the film really morphs into something very different than what it begins and what it sets you up to think it's going to be. I really thought this was going to be some sort of a tense sort of hostage drama, you know, with this guy holding the couple against their will and presenting danger and definitely playing on that kind of gut level fear of the affluent white suburbanites against the, the militant black home invader who's stronger, meaner, ruthless, savage, all of that. And that that would be kind of the, the, the tone of the film suspense and dread and wondering if the worst is going to happen and will they be able to find their way to safety. And then it, it really does. It turns into almost this kind of surreal, distortion of of the conventions that we've been set up to to fall into in terms of even things like racial stereotypes and prejudice and and uh, the dehumanization of the criminal uh, and, and the elevation of the privileged couple as the as the objects of of uh, kind of heroic defense and will they make it through or not and so yeah the the the, the turn into dark comedy and sort of a psychosexual analysis of the hangups of these various individuals. Um, Cause bone himself has his own sort of soul bearing moment, you know, that he's got to transcend some of the stereotypes that he himself has bought into as a black man in a culture that, uh, you know, views men like him with, with suspicion. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you do have a pretty uh, trenchant social commentary going on here, but the, the way that it gets there is really kind of disorienting the first time through. And I thought it was actually kind of brilliant because it does kind of pull our chain and, and takes the viewer on a bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, Richard, tell me a little bit about some of your thoughts and reactions to bone. Um, I'm a big Larry Cohen fan, and I think this is—I think this is his best film. Uh, he he mostly does horror occasionally, like he did some black exploitation films, like Black Black Caesar. But um, as as David said, he's primarily a writer, and he, you can kind of tell in his work he has really interesting ideas that are often like executed in a guerrilla fashion and, and sort okay. of rough. <laughs> at times. Yeah, yeah. But this one is sort of uncharacteristic for him. It's like it's not strictly a genre film. It's more like a dark satire mm-hmm. of you know, sort of the state of various things about America at the time and it, it's like it's like sort of quietly brilliant film, I think. Um mm-hmm. um the the way that um you get Andrew Duggan's character sort of <laughs> eventually sort of revealing that the only thing he really does care about is his business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's the classic workaholic, small businessman who's out there making it hustling, but it, it's not to any particular purpose other than that's just his drive. That's his reason for existing. I mean, he's a, clearly in money trouble. It's not like he's getting rich yeah. off of this, but he's got a lifestyle. He's got the status symbols, you know, the house, the pool, the wife, uh, drives a nice car, you know, um, but yeah, but there's not a whole lot of satisfaction found in all of that. No, it does a very good job of questioning whether that's what it's all about, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like this couple are are both very sort of at least on the surface materially successful, and neither of them are even slightly happy about it. Right. And it's like the crisis with uh, Bone kind of brings out in them that you know neither of them really want what they've got. 
Yeah, yeah, because in in the in the process of ransacking the couple's bedroom and his office because he's looking for the cash, he figures there's got to be money around here somewhere. Well, he finds out that the the husband has secretly taken out a triple mortgage on their house. He's got another five thousand dollars stashed in a, a private bank account that he has not told his wife about. So all of this dirty laundry is being discovered. Uh, much to everyone's chagrin, except Bone, he finds the whole thing pretty amusing. Um, but then, yeah, let's talk about Bernadette and Joyce Van Patten. I mean, clearly, Yafet Koto is the star of this film. He's the charismatic central figure. But I have to give respect to Joyce Van Patten. She really sold out for this role. She she gave it everything she had. Uh, this is a, the younger sister of Dick Van Patten, who was pretty well-known TV character actor. He was the dad on Eight is Enough, I believe. And, you know, you've seen him on all kinds of other shows from the 70s and 80s. And Dick Van Patten in particular seems like this really wholesome all-American guy as far as the characterizations that he portrays on screens and his sort of status almost as a TV actor institution in his own right. Joyce really, uh, you know, she was also and had a long career doing TV bits. So she wasn't like an unfamiliar face, probably not as well established as her older brother. But she really goes into some pretty dark and twisted places herself and puts a lot of her, you know, heart and physicality into into the performance of this kind of lonely, bored housewife who's been taken for granted and then here comes this uh, man, this rapist who's threatening her, and yet it awakens something in her that that she wants to actually, you know, uh, build, like you said, David, build a relationship with this guy and humanize him uh, and find a little bit of satisfaction herself. I, I, again, it's a, it's not a very, what I would consider plausible or realistic scenario, uh, but but there's a comment being made here. There's an observation about the sterility of the life that seems like, you know, the fulfillment of the American dream from the outside, but is really kind of just rotten mildew once you're actually living it. And I just thought that was a really interesting um, commitment that she made to that role uh, in a film that, you know, might otherwise seem a bit ephemeral or disposable in some way. Yeah, all all the performances in the film are excellent. Mm-hmm. And what I like best about it is just the fact that that does everyone's expectations are kind of confounded through the course of the film. So and even Yafet Kodo is he presents himself even he says it verbally in the film that I am everything you expect that I am like that that what that like a certain segment of, of sort of affluent white population might see, uh, you know, with, with that sort of racist mentality, they might look at a black man as a, as a criminal and a rapist. And, and he even says that he says, I'm all the, these things that I'm supposed to be to you. That's what I am. Yeah. But then through the course of the film and through the dialogue, uh, that he has with the, with the wife, you, he that you slowly break that down and you learn uh he becomes uh more humanized and you learn more about why he's ended up in the state that he's in and the the kind of um, issues he has with his sexuality and the and his feelings and about how he's had to learn to cope with certain things 
Right. And, yeah. And, yeah. Tenderness and, and intimacy don't like work for him at this point. He, he has to have it kind of rough and violent and, and you know, fearful and menacing that that's kind of what he's been conditioned to, to perform yeah. under, so to speak. Yeah. And like you say to the couple, like he picked out this couple because he, he, in his mind, he had a stereotype of what yep. they were. Right. Uh, and then he learns through the film that yes, the, the man is, uh, there's lots of lies and, and, uh, um, things going on under the surface with this couple, uh, and with this man in particular that he's, he's stealing and he's, uh, and he's doing all sorts of dodgy things on the side to maintain this lifestyle and this image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, and then when he uh, sees his wife at the end, uh, and sorry, this will be the spoiler bit yeah. for people who haven't seen the film. I apologize, but um, the, the the murder at the end of the film, uh, um, Bone just looks on almost in horror at the end is the way I interpreted to see, you know, because really he was supposed to be the one to come in and be this disruptor and this, uh, you know, commit all these crimes and do all this thing. But in the end, he kind of becomes a bystander, doesn't he? And he right. just gets, uh, he, he's maybe the catalyst that brings all these things to a head. But in the end, he stands on as an onlooker in shock and disbelief at exactly uh, wh- how things uh, really are uh, and then when he really sees them and then he just sort of disappears off into the into the mist yeah it's so definitely a, it's a trick of the movie I mean he just disappears they're out in this big sand dune I mean there's physically nowhere he could have gone just to disappear but Bernadette the, the, the wife character here she says I don't, don't I don't need you or I didn't need you like this savage act that she's just committed against her husband taking his life maybe was awakened by bone but she says twice i didn't need you or i don't need you and he hears Mm -hmm. that and realizes how he's been actually played himself in this whole scenario yeah you could almost interpret that too as a little bit of you know like richard said that the film in in a very subtly tries to touch on various Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of uh, movements and ideas that were floating around at the time. So there would be the uh, women's liberation as well. And yep. how that, you know, that sentiment, that sort of, I don't really need you. I'm, I can be a, you know, I, I can look after myself and I can be empowered. That's all sort of tied up in that. Obviously it's like a violent crime. We, we can't mm-hmm. escape that, but but if you look at that just more metaphorically, then it's it, it becomes representative of something else. What do you think about her closing monologue then? Because that that's the final twist of the knife, isn't it? Where she's talking about kind of giving her sort of alibi, if you will, to the potential yeah. police investigation that's going to say, your husband was killed, what happened? And she goes. Yes, and she blames it all on the on the the stereotype. That's right. The big grotesque black man. He raped me. I of course I resisted. My husband was very compassionate. He believed in equality for the blacks. And I just using a whole liberal guilt, you know, cliche uh, formula to just sort of turn the tables. Like, of course, I'm a progressive, humane, uh, you know. enlightened person i'm modern i'm I'm with it but this 
big savage Negro just kind of came in and destroyed our life and you'll have to yeah, put yeah. all the blame on him, go out and find him. The unidentified Negro is uh, the stereotype that Bone kind of references earlier in the film. And I will yeah, say for, for viewers. so much what, yeah. what, what we do in society even oh, today. Yeah. I mean, there, you can see all kinds of problems in people. There, there's the narrative. There's kind of that a narrative about this is what it's all about to deflect from the reality of the situation, isn't it? So, oh, you know, well, it happens with frequency here in the USA yeah. of, 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 of killings where it's the, you know, whoever one spouse kills their partner, but blames it on these, this, this black guy who just showed up and had menacing intentions. And of course, playing into those stereotypes, the police believe that report and they're going out, you know, doing the dragnet for, you know, black men to see if they can pull them over for questioning. And so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a very, very sharp critique going on here. Yeah. I mean, I think of the three films that, that we're talking about tonight, this is by far for me the, the, the best one and the most, the most interesting. Um, yeah, I would uh, agree. I would agree. Richard, with that. And, and it has a lot going for it. And it's also led me, um, uh, Richard mentioned about how much he likes Larry Cohen and I've, unfortunately I couldn't do as quite as deep a dive as I would have liked in, in the time period, but I have sort of um, tried to familiarize myself a little bit more with some of his other work. And I think you can see that real strain that runs through it of the, the, the social critique, even when, um, I mean, one of the ones I watched a couple of days ago was um, Q, uh, Q the Serpent. I don't know if you've seen that one, Richard. <laughs> that's, that's the first of his I saw. Yeah. The Winged Serpent, yeah, but it's it's brilliant because it um, it has that, like on the surface, it's a giant monster movie, but there's so much else going on in there um, that that's really uh, terrific. Yeah, yeah, I think Owen has a real, uh, like there's always sort of a, a questioning hook. Did you manage, I don't know if you saw, have you ever seen this stuff? Uh, no, I haven't. But um, the only other one I watched was um, God Told Me To. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is quite something as well. Yeah. But but um, he's, he's got, it's really in the writing that, that where he, he really uh, brings things out. Yeah. And I think um, Bone, Bone probably, I, I mean, it's quite, um, uh, I don't know. How would you say like it? It's it like um, David mentioned. It just confounds expectations right from the beginning. It, it's the, one of the reasons I think it's one of my favorite of his is he's often, um, you know, he, he's always been sort of an independentish filmmaker, right? So he's often tying some particular idea to some sort of commercial agenda, right? So he'll make a horror film like Q or the stuff that has a social critique to it, but it's also a horror film. Whereas in this case, it feels like sort of the purest, just social satire from him, right? Like at the beginning mm -hmm. of his career, he's going all out on something that arguably isn't all that commercially promising, but it is sort of a, a statement about where he sees the, you know, sort of the sour under the underbelly of American society at the time. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'd be interesting because, I mean, it, this wasn't a film that I was... Um, familiar with at all really um 
and and I think David too, you sort of appended it on onto the yes onto the schedule too, because we were just going to talk about the other two, and then um, you kind of said, "Oh, I'd like to just stick this one in here as well." And I'm really glad you did because um, it salvages I, the I episode. Think... <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly um, it certainly I think what is is quite quite an interesting film and quite engaging. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, uh, we never really talked about the other character, which is this this young lady that the the man um, befriends in the supermarket. Quite a girl, Played by Elaine's daughter, by the way. Yep. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Fascinating. The, but she's a, quite an interesting character because, again, she's not all she seems, and as as it progresses. Right. I mean, they meet in they meet in the bank and just have a casual conversation. Oh, sorry, are you in the queue? Kind of thing. But then she sort of accosts him again outside the bank and and sort of um, drags him into her world. And uh, and it, it, it transpires that she actually just lives by sort of getting freebies from the bank. Uh, by she keeps switching bank accounts so she can get the perks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she, she goes around and she takes him shoplifting in the supermarket, and uh, she just lives this uh, sort of hand to mouth <laughs> lifestyle, grabbing but, green um, steps out of the front seat of unlocked cars. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just all this brilliant stuff. And then when they go back to her flat and she cooks him a meal and they're talking, it transpires that the reason she was attracted to him and the reason that she wanted to. Um, uh, sort of bring him back home was because um, he reminded her of a, of a man who molested her in a cinema when she was mm-hmm. a child. Yeah. So it's like this sort of shocking sort of realization. And, and there's even a point in those moments where you think she, she's actually planning on enacting some sort of revenge on him, like that she's picked him out as this figure uh, who she wants to in, in, enact revenge on for mm-hmm. this this thing that happened to her in her youth but no in in the end she actually just sleeps with him they have sex right, right. she seduces <laughs> and, him and and so mm-hmm. so that so yeah so the 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 psychological implications of that act in and of itself is quite sort of um transgressive and quite sort of um, it goes in a in a quite a dark place about the the the, the kind of the the, the truth of how people uh, people's experiences in, inform their relationships going forward, don't they? So if someone if someone who's um, you know in an abusive relationship or who has experiences like that, um, how that can manifest itself in their sexuality and in their personal uh, sort of um, relations with other people, and so that I thought that was quite an interesting aside that the film actually went there and, and sort of brought those ideas in. Um, so it's just things like that, that I thought the film was really quite um, uh, powerful in a way. Oh, for sure. And and there's kind of a, a cross-generational thing going on. I mean, he's clearly certainly old enough to be her father, maybe even her gr- grandfather, you know, uh, she's a, I think she was 23 years old at the time. Uh, like we say, a late May's daughter. Go ahead, Richard. I didn't really mean to do that. Sorry. But, um, <laughs> but I was, I was going to say that I actually think that this, this part of the film is also a pretty brilliant undercutting of the, mm-hmm. uh, of a very standard trope in this period, right? Where you get yeah. 
the older man meets the sort of free love hippie girl. <laughs> exactly. He's going, yeah. to, he's going to save him by introducing him to, you know, uh, her wild lifestyle and like free him sexually. And it sort of plays out that way. And it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. <laughs> right? Mm. Like it all happens and he basically just leaves and resumes the plot. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And again, he even seems just... completely uninterested in her, really, in a sense. It's almost just like a distraction for him so he can waste more time, delay himself getting back to to the house. Right. I mean, he's still got his property and, and he probably does not want to see his wife massacred, you know, when it gets right down to it. But yeah, even though he, he certainly takes his sweet old time, you know, and and doesn't actually withdraw the cash like he was supposed to. So you know it, it is you know there might be a little bit of a plot hole in terms of how he was supposed to extricate himself from this dilemma. But as I've already said, the film just kind of morphs off into its own sort of wavelength. Where you know as he's um, at he goes to his advertiser, uh, one of his advertising uh, agents, and I think he's trying to get some money from them but he's already into hock with them. They're not going to give him anything. And so as he's leaving their office, um, that's when he sees Bernadette and bone on the sidewalk waiting for him. Cause they've kind of figured out that's where he's going to try to go to get some money since they got that phone call saying the bank uh, talked him out of making the withdrawal. So, you know, it, and, and that's what sets us up for the final, you know, there's a little bit of a chase scene going on here. So there's, there is definitely some, some fun, with filmmaking conventions and of course we all know the early 70s was kind of a golden age for you know uh car chase scenes uh you know of kind of a more gritty and realistic sort it's it's not elaborate by any means but there's some of that kind of thing going on um and leading up to that kind of culminating um and rather enigmatic you know murder scene on the sand dune uh that ends up with bernadette sort of wandering off and, and wondering you know what what she's gonna make of the rest of her life so yeah but i, I definitely did enjoy that interlude with the Jeannie berlin uh the, the girl character as she's credited in the film i actually have a slightly different take on the film i think okay he's, i think he's completely abandoned his wife to to, to her fate i, I think okay he's yeah that the money's more important as soon as yeah the, as soon as the bank teller questions what he's doing, he decides he has permission to choose the money. Yeah. I think he's trying to, yeah. when he's talking to his his advertising guy, I think he's trying to set up a, an alibi because okay. he's talking about how he can't reach his wife. And Oh, yeah. So maybe just to get some cash and disappear and abscond. Yeah. And, yeah, and, just, and to make yeah. it sound like he hasn't been home all day and he doesn't know what's going on. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, I agree that I I interpret it as him sort of seeing it as a an escape route. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> he's got his freedom now, and so he can just sort of shed the baggage and try something new. Not necessarily going back to the girl. I mean, that's that's kind of a one and done yeah, type of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny. This the expectation is he only cares about money. He doesn't care about sex, but she's going to like awaken this in him, and it doesn't. He's just yeah, he's right. wants the money. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, so Richard, you were talking a little bit about Larry Cohen, and I, you know, I know that this was part of a Yafet Koto bundle on the Criterion Channel. Is there more to say? I mean, I, you know, you already kind of did a little overview there, but uh, interesting. You say this, this is your favorite of his films, and this was his debut. Uh, it seems like he's had a, a pretty 
lengthy career. I think uh, he did It's Alive. I think was that maybe the, the follow up to this one as far as his uh, directing oh, was concerned. Black, or... Black Caesar was uh, okay. The black exploitation version of Little Caesar with okay, Fred, sure. Red Wilt the Hammer. Right. Yeah. Well, then it's alive, and then um, God told me to. Um, okay. But what's interesting about him is I think the re- one of the reasons this is my favorite is he's sort of he sort of struggled like through his whole career to do things that had sort of an interesting idea to them, but not ever really having a whole lot of money. So he's very much a commercial filmmaker, but this one doesn't feel like that. This one reminds me of uh, Brian De Palma made two strange comedies really early in his career with Robert De Niro in them that feel like just wild satires of, of the time. And this feels very much like one of those, like a, a film that isn't necessarily trying to make a buck. It's really like Larry Cohen dropping Larry Cohen on an audience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that is kind of a, a nice segue into sort of a wrap up uh, comment on these three films, which kind of what is what I led with. They're, they're just three really, what I would say are non-commercial films that seem to be trying to pass themselves off as entertainment for not necessarily mainstream audiences. I mean, they're not going up against, you know, the Godfather or the French connection or the Poseidon adventure, some of the big blockbusters of that era. But uh, you know, these are films that seem to be, you know, trying to connect with an audience that they believe will, you know, click with this really offbeat, uh, potentially alienating and polarizing material. And I think that's just such a fascinating comment that they were all released within a week or two of each other in late July 1972, um, a time when I think, you know, the popular cinema was just much more freewheeling and unpredictable of what you were going to find when you just dropped into a movie theater to see what was, what was coming out uh, that particular week. So just the fact that they, they did all fall together on the uh, release calendar, the the fact that they're all kind of, you know, streaming on the criterion channel and uh, that they all kind of have a sort of a, an indie underground, even kind of a New York city connection because they all kind of came from filmmakers or scenes very much located on, on the Island of Manhattan um, even if the, the action takes you elsewhere, these people all sort of had roots to, to the New York independent film scene kind of creates a, an affinity or a connection between the three that I think, you know, makes them appropriate to group together for a conversation such as we've had, such as we've had today. So yeah, any final comments that you, you guys want to make? David, I'll give you a first chance to kind of wrap things up or, you know, kind of give us a, an overall, you know, verdict, uh, recommendations of what have you on these films? Uh, sure. Well, I would say of, of the three films, I would definitely recommend Bone and, and I would recommend Greaser's Palace as well because I, I did enjoy it. Um, Chow Manhattan, I can't in good faith recommend that. But having said that, I think if you're interested in that kind of time period or the the individuals involved or anything like that, then there may be some value there for you to check that out um yeah it, i guess it just personally rubbed me the wrong way maybe if i saw it at another time i might have uh, uh, taken it a bit differently um but definitely uh, bone is a really interesting film which i'm glad i've because i quite honestly had never i was not familiar with it at all so 
thank you, David, for, for introducing me to that. And, uh, um, I can't really think of anything else to say. That's good. Well, no, <laughs> and thank you for jumping on the, uh, into the conversation with us. Uh, Richard, what's your kind of parting words for us? My, my recommendations would be the same as David's. Uh, I probably like Greaser's Palace more than it made it sound like I did because I love Downey, but yeah. it's not a, it's not my favorite Downey film, but I'd say like sort of like these, what's interesting about this period in time is it's kind of a time where, you know, culture has shifted, but the movie making institutions haven't really. Mm -hmm. So you get these films that get like a decent release that are yeah. really odd little gorilla outings that feel very personal, even if you don't like them. Like I'd say Chow Manhattan does not feel like a film that's made for, to make money that, that I'll say, you know? Right. And uh, right. It, it's like, you, there aren't many periods in time where you get films like this getting real legitimate releases to the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do appreciate that, that kind of freewheeling style and, Let's roll the dice. Let's throw the spaghetti against the wall and see what's there. Was just some fascinating stuff happening in the uh, in the cinema scene of the seventies, and that's why I love talking about these little uh, steps off the beaten path of what was happening in movie making at that time. So great. Okay, well, our next episode is going to be one that I've been talking with Aaron West. Of course, he is one of the co-hosts of Criterion Now. He and his co-host Jill Blake have been on a little bit of a hiatus with the with that podcast over the course of the summer, uh, but they just recently recorded a couple episodes. I know one of them is in circulation right now, just kind of a catch up and uh, you know, kind of filling everybody in and talking about some recent Criterion related news, etc. They've got another episode that's in the can and should be out fairly soon. But Aaron and I have been kind of talking offline, and we've been uh, we've decided we're going to take a look at Blackula. And Blackenstein, a couple of uh, black exploitation slash horror mashups there that have uh, recently premiered on the Criterion Channel. So he and I are going to take a look at those films, uh, Blackula from again July 1972, Blackenstein from 1973. But we're going to double those up into a little uh, double feature, and it'll just be nice to get back on online with Aaron talking again. And so we'll probably meander off into some other topics and areas as well so that'll be the next episode of criterion reflections be very happy to get aaron back on on the podcast here and talking about a little bit of horror as we are still in the month of october 2022 so that's our episode for today thank you for listening in everybody send us your feedback and comments and uh, especially if you've got any defenses or withering takedowns of these three films i'm interested to hear your reactions and thoughts so again thanks for listening in and we'll be coming at you real soon bye-bye Valentino suddenly appeared in his midnight blue tuxedo Had a falcon on his shoulder, eating chicken from his hand Fatty Arbuckle waddled by on his way to the bathhouse green Frankenstein ate the leading lady and licked the carcass clean